Now, I want to show you that already here we're in the middle of our problem, and the problem is the different ways one recruits for a religious order and for a cult, that it is possible there is a natural explanation, there can be a natural explanation for this fact, that a young person or an older person is attracted to abandon all things and go toward the leader. And what would the natural explanation be? Well, this way. Suppose the leader is naturally attractive. It, it, let's take something perfectly innocent in the guides. I don't know, I know there's a such a thing as the girl guides. In America we call them the girl scouts, and the boys would be the boy scouts. Most youngsters, say of eight or nine, really would like their father to take them fishing, go into the woods and all that, and the father's probably saying, hey, get, get lost. And if they meet a really nice 18-year-old or 20-year-old or 30-year-old who loves kids and takes them for hikes, takes them fishing and all that, you don't need a psychiatrist to say, why does my kid like the leader? It's perfectly obvious. There's a natural explanation. The leader is attractive. He's genteel. He's good to the, he's good to the youngster. And that's perfectly wholesome. So, so too... If you want to know why St. Francis attracted people, read his life. You would have to be crazy not to love St. Francis. He was lovable. He was a merry minstrel. He loved God. He loved nature. He loved his fellow man. Therefore, there's nothing ugly or deep or dark or mysterious about his attractiveness for people. And that's how great friendships are made, too. That You, you are fortunate enough to come into the uh, arena with someone who's naturally attractive, and you gravitate toward this person. So that's one way. There's another natural explanation in a different sense. And this is natural in a, in a psychologically depraved sense, but there's a nature. In other words, this can be studied, if you will, by psychologists. This whole sense of hypnotism and power of suggestion. Now, it's, it's, it's perfectly easy to know the difference when you see it. It's hard to articulate the difference, but there's a perfect difference, I claim, between a jovial, uh, uh, happy Boy Scout leader who likes fishing and the youngsters flock around him, and Don Bosco was the same way, and this other kind of person who always casts a dark, oppressive spell wherever he comes, but people seem powerless to, 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 to resist him. He has a kind of personality with his power of suggestion, his strong, he crushes freedom. And it's very important. And that's natural. That's not diabolical. It's natural. And there is even this hypnotism, which at one time was very big. It started in France with this mesmerism. And uh, they're even still doing it. In America, the big hypnotists are the dentists. Instead of using Novocaine, they want to hypnotize you. You're not feeling pain. You're not feeling pain if they pull the tooth out. And maybe it works. I don't know. But I'm perfectly open to this as a natural phenomenon. I've seen instances where I think hypnotism works. I think it has its dangers. But I don't say it's diabolical. There is, how, and also the final thing, which is natural in this perverse sense, would be what advertisers know. This so-called subliminal suggestion that subliminal manipulation, that this is the way they did it. You know, in America, everything is prostituted. And I, you people are not that far away. I mean, it's just a quick jet plane ride, six hours each way. 
So if we have something stupid, either you have it or you will have it. There's no, why we speak the same language. If only there were a Tower of Babel, it would take you a while before they translate the nonsense. But most universities are stupid. I mean, that's my basic premise. I am, I am uh, in no way earning my keep at a university, but who cares? I mean, I'm, I get my salary, and I tried to make it serious, but they couldn't care less. You have all these courses now in psychology, and there's no serious attempt. Most of the stuff is not a serious attempt to find out the truth about man and God and good and evil, which is what university is supposed to be. The typical course is in how to manipulate your fellow man. You, you need a master's degree in business advertising. And, and you have professors of psychology and professors of graphics and professors of subliminal manipulation. And they do all these market surveys. And then you, and then you get a degree, of course. I mean, you're, you're a university man. You, you've got 57 credit hours in psychology and all that. So, which, which to me is so stupid. It's a typical prostitution of learning. But why not? I mean, we need the work. In other words, the, the, the university exists. We'd be unemployed unless we have all this stupidity. And the kids need the degree, so we're both happy. There's no learning, but at least we don't blow the whistle on each other. So some, some deep psychologist, uh, he was an advertising man, which is the big career. You don't have to be a scientist, a poet or anything. Just, be a, just write advertising copy become a merchant of words, know how to put Mickey Mouse on television, which, who is attractive, and you'll make more money than the whole faculty. So this one was, they wanted to show, let's say you're seeing a film, and normally you think the people <laughs> in the film are moving, but we all know that the film is made up of all these still shots, but because you run them fast enough, it gives the illusion of motion. Well, we know that. That was already known, and that's okay. They also found out, though, that if in every split second, let's say once every second, no, once every minute, just for a split, split second, one frame of a film, they put, buy popcorn, buy popcorn. See? And, right. Now, people didn't even see it. Apparently, according to this deep scientific research, people didn't even see it. So they're watching a movie and this and that. And at the break... They all run out to buy popcorn. <laughs> now this is and then they had a control group next door in which they didn't have it, and then they only, only a few people bought popcorn, right? So this got so bad, though. This subliminal it really worked. Therefore, these deep professors did find something. You can see how deep universities are. You know, we know how to make people buy popcorn. <laughs> that it got so bad, though, that the Federal Trade Bureau forbade subliminal advertising with the correct premise that it is it dethrones freedom. These people are no longer free. They're being manipulated by psychological mechanisms to do what they didn't really want to do. That the, It was put into their subliminal consciousness, but they didn't even recognize it was said. At least when the idiot on television says, buy popcorn, we even say drop dead, because who, you, know, you at least, he's appealing to your freedom. Usually it won't be an idiot, it'll be a pretty girl in bikinis, and that's already assaulting your freedom. But at least you know it's happening to you, where this subliminal stuff is insinuating a point, and, and it's not fair. So that has been stopped. I mean, we have, we have ethics in America, I want you to know that. We don't, we're not cheating people. Now, 
That would exhaust quickly what I claim is the natural explanation for why people do something. How to explain behavior? Naturally speaking, it can be explained by attractiveness, the Boy Scout leader who takes the kids fishing. It, be, it can be explained by hypnotism or, or this manipulation, subliminal manipulation. But let's now not stop there. I mean, the psychologists always stop at natural explanations. That's the only thing that exists, according to them. There is no God, there is no evil, there is no devil, there is no angel. But we know differently, I hope, I hope I'm talking to people who have faith, at least, if not rational knowledge of God and the supernatural. And we say there could also be a supernatural explanation why people follow other people. And this is what we used to call the, the mysterious power of grace. That I am in the company of this other person and there's a mysterious pull of grace. Some power not naturally explicable but coming from God. Supernatural power enables me to see in Francis of Assisi or Claire or this person enables me to see what's really there but enables me to see it in depth and to love it. And this would be called grace. This would be a supernatural power enabling me to see certain aspects which otherwise would be totally invisible and not able to be grasped by me. It lets, so that's the second possibility, therefore, that one explains leadership through grace, through supernatural power. And the third possibility, but let us not discount it, is that there is a preternatural, subnatural, horrible, diabolical power which explains why some people are attracted to other people. I am convinced that in certain of this rock music, for example, there's something diabolical, and I'm not exaggerating, that there is nothing naturally attractive about ugliness and horror and filth and everything else, and yet People are gravitating toward that. Their whole lives are destroyed. They're manipulated by these wondrous uh, gurus of music. And I don't accept the natural explanation. It's blasphemous to say it comes from God. It comes from the devil. Now, you have to be careful about that, though. It's not good to find the devil in everything. I mean, some people would find the devil in popcorn ads, something like that. that I, I say, let's be cautious. But in this age of devil worship, Satanism, and everything else, which are the worst cults of all, let us not discount the power of the fallen angel. The devil is a fallen angel. He was once the bearer of light. The prince of devils is Lucifer. And he can well get the credit for so much happening. In fact, if you ask me... Who could have orchestrated the almost total collapse of the Roman Catholic Church? Dr. Lucifer has to get much more credit than mere historical, sociological trends. That only a diabolical mind could have had this confluence of so many different forces appealing to pride and tradition and weakness and cowardice and nationalism and everything else, which gave us this disaster of the last 20 years. I admit there are historical causes which make it more intelligible, but I think the final orchestration has to be credited to that master of deceit. And if you, that's not my invention. Some people think the devil is an invention of the Roman Curia. 
before, before Vatican II. And today, the latest insight is there is no devil. Well, then, Jesus Christ was deceived. Just, just read the Bible. I mean, this is, isn't this the age of the Bible? Everybody's supposed to be reading the Bible. Well, Jesus Christ talks about the devil many, many times. He himself was tempted by the devil. So, so that there is no devil, that's the invention of these romanticists in the last 20 years, not the latest insight of biblical criticism or anything else. Now I come to my point. That is the background for my quickly running through these points. I want to go into this first point about the different ways a cult will recruit an individual and a genuine religious order will recruit an individual that whenever you speak of a genuine religious order, and I'm thinking of Mother Teresa today, St. Francis, St. Ignatius in the past, and Don Bosco, so many people in the past, they never use tricks or pressure. This is, sometimes their successes do. I, I know certain religious orders today, they use psychological pressure, but to that extent they fail to follow the spirit of their founder. But when you have a genuine religious order, there is no sense, there is none of this staring and looking disappointed because you're not following us. And this, the way this psychological pressure that parents have to put on children and certain priests have to put on, on uh, uh, youngsters and cult leaders always have to put on their, their victims, that this psych or tricks or pressure. Rather, in a religious order, there is this irresistible attraction, first of all, of the God-man. And this, by the way, is why our liturgy is such a disaster. Until the experts got into the act, the 2,000-year history of the church, first of all, was based on the faith that Jesus Christ is irresistible, Secondly, had a history of triumph after triumph. We didn't need clown masses. We didn't need banners done by scribblers. We didn't need silly clergymen. Good morning. <laughs> we needed Jesus Christ, the unvarnished Jesus Christ. That all you need, Jesus Christ is so irresistible that if you but show him to your fellow man, your fellow man will fall in love. And when you have St. Francis of Assisi, who himself fell in love with Christ through a mystical means, when now he radiated his love of Christ in, in anything he did, it's perfectly understandable that he would draw men and women into himself. He was irresistible because Christ is irresistible, and this does presuppose divine grace, which is there in abundance. So that is no pressure, no tricks, but the irresistible attraction of Christ and this grace from God. Please note this. In these situations, there's total respect for your freedom. This question of freedom is a very difficult question. It will bear a separate lecture. But whenever you are falling in love, it is the exact opposite of becoming enslaved. When you are enslaved, you find yourself shackled, that there's no ability, you, you walk like a, someone with glazed eyes. Whenever you really love someone, you say, now finally I am free. 
I wing my way towards something beautiful and good. I am in total possession of myself and I willingly lose myself before something precious. And that is the case with every genuine religious experience. Freedom is totally actualized, totally respected. There is, there is this invitation from the lover, from the loved one, in this case Christ, mediated through St. Francis or St. Clair, and you say, I understand the call, and I gladly accept it. You are irresistibly drawn, but always with your freedom intact, never with its pull. When you lust after someone, you're slaved. Lust, vice, enslaves you. Your freedom is shackled, but whenever you are in the midst of something precious and good, finally, you are liberated. And that's what the freedom of the children of God means. It doesn't mean throw off all restraint and, and start streaking naked across the, the commons. That, that's what they used to think it meant. No, I mean, that, that, that's yielding to stupidities. That freedom really means the, the ability to do what you ought to do and to do it with love and to do it with, with enthusiasm and exhilaration. And that does happen in the great, uh, in the pure sense when one has a genuine religious vocation. Whenever you have a cult and whenever you have a religious order which has abandoned Christ, because that's out of date and we've got the latest insights of behavioral science and psychology and everything else, that to the extent that a religious order abandons its ideal and is in, contaminated by, by modern stupidity, you have these things, you have all kinds of assaults on freedom. And the first assault is this, there are all kinds of lies. This is especially true of the cult. They'll lie to you about their guru. They'll lie to you about the good you can do, about the enemy, about this, about that. The youth are gullible. The youth are less and less educated in any case. The youth are, are desperate for community. So whenever you begin with a lie, freedom is impossible because you are following a phantom, a shadow. You're not following a real thing. They also have all kinds of behavioral manipulation and pressure you know, we have this expression, brainwashing. And they first started out, it's another fruit of psychology, and they started this out in the Korean War, the Chinese communists did, that you have soldiers who are pushed around as enough. I mean, even in the, your own side pushes you around enough. If you're an, uh, uh, an enlisted man, you get pushed around by the officers. But at least you're all working on the same side. But if you're a prisoner of war, and you're maltreated, and they put you in a room, and they work—they don't beat you this time, but they make—they mush up your will, and and in the moment, in the moment, they make it seem that you are betraying your buddy, unless you denounce America or England or something like that. And most people broke. Most soldiers who would have stayed strong under physical torture, they broke under the psychological need. They desperately needed the approval of their comrades, and they didn't get it. So that's what the cult does. It has this enormous psychological pressure which destroys freedom. There sometimes are threats of physical violence. I heard this. I am not a journalist, so I'm not about to go into further details. I gave a lecture on this in New York, in New Jersey, and somebody immediately confronted me because I had given an example which I could not back up with facts. I'm not a reporter, so I simply do this in the abstract. 
And I say, to the extent you may have heard of it, please remember the category. That there are certain cults, not religious orders, where the people know it's a swindle. They're psychologically mushed by the pressure, and they also know if they break, they suffer perhaps from violence. In the Communist Party, by the way, it's a good question whether Communist parties are cults. I, I say not really. There's certain similarities between the two, but there's all kinds of assaults on freedom. Uh, in America, the best book in America, I think, by an American, at least in political writing, is Whitaker Chambers' Witness. Everyone, if you want to know, in a sense, the greatness of an American, but also his, his ultimate failure, Chambers was a communist for many years, on high-level espionage in this famous Alger Hiss case. He finally broke, and the story of witness is 500 pages of, of what it meant to break. Well, he was under all kinds of pressure, psychological pressure to stay, but also threats of physical pressure. He, he had to carry a weapon with him because he was afraid of assassination. And that happens enough. I, mean, I hear there are, the, that whenever you have religious fanaticism, Never mind cults. You break with the group and you might get a bullet through your head or a car bomb. Now, I don't say every cult is like that, but there's this, there's this tendency. Now, if a religious order has to keep its people in the convent with car bombs, well, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Or, or with a stick. That, that some some uh, yellow journalists probably accuse Carmels of doing that and so on. And maybe there have been some crazy convents. But you don't need... The, the walls in a convent are not to keep the nuns or the monks in. It's to keep other people out. I mean, they want, they want their life uh, surrounding Christ. And, and they, if you don't mind, you have the rest of the earth. Would you please give them their few acres so they can have their own life together? There is a, also about the cult, there's this systematic effort to pry the young away from their parents in every sense of the word. And this is why parents are correctly alarmed. If your son or daughter joins a religious order, he has to renounce parent and home and marriage for the religious order. But, but he loves you. He prays for you. You visit him. He's closer to you now that he belongs to Christ than he ever was before. In a cult, the parent is made to be the basis of error, obscurantism, uh, uh, revolution, and so on, and only to the extent that the youngster erases this, this infamy of his family is he considered fit to be in the cult. And this is a tragic destruction of family, this uh, prying the youngster away from his parents in every sense. You see, and this is vicious too, this, this problem of what constitutes community. We're all lonely. Some people are much more lonely than others, and some people, uh, there are two sorts of loneliness. If you are not married, you're living in a flat all by yourself, young or old, you see the couples on parade and you're envious. Because at least these couples, the married people, the engaged people, or someone who has a boyfriend, or someone who has a friend of the same sex, you say, gee, these people are someone to talk to. I just go to my flat and I talk to the dog. Or the television talks to me. 
and you, in a sense, are envious of everyone else. And relatively speaking, you have something to be envious about, because those with family have someone to talk to. But even those with family, even if you live in the same place with four or five other people, that doesn't mean you have community. And even when you have community, I mean, some marriages actually stay together. It is a miracle. We need a supernatural explanation for that. Some families stay together. And you ask yourself, how close are these people? And if you ever reflect, there is a serious gradation. Sometimes it's just a mere toleration. Well, we all use the same kitchen. And we, we greet each other. We mumble at each other in the morning, and that's the end of community. Sometimes we'll say a prayer together. Sometimes we'll look at a show together. But there's a tremendous gradation, and we really crave community. The liberals have ruined this word. Because for them, community, can everybody get together? I mean, don't, don't let, let, they don't want you to pray alone in the church. You have to join it. They remind me of these people on the steamships. I used to cross the Atlantic on these expensive steamships. And there was a hostess. And she could not endure that you're sitting on the table sipping uh, something. <laughs> Come on in. So that's community. And why should I get so cozy with this guy next door? He, he's embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. We're all embarrassed. If I feel like talking to someone, I'll talk to someone. But we shouldn't let the liberals ruin that word because what a delicious gift it is. If you could walk through the woods or walk on the sidewalk or stay in a flat with someone who understands you, someone who loves a Shakespeare play with you, someone who loves, uh, who loves to read the Bible with you. What a gift it is that this isolated shell of self is pierced and you have a community. Now the cults play on that. Most of us are desperately lonely, above all the young. They've got money, cars, booze, sex, you name it. And they're not the, this, and they, they are the most defrauded generation in the world, but not from the point of view of material goods. They're, they're pampered too much. They would be far happier with half the material good. But when it comes to what really counts, a sense of, of deep unity with their own parents, most of the time that does not exist with their brothers or sisters or with anyone else. They are these isolated uh, globules, as if, as if everyone is encased in glass and simply bounces around meaninglessly. And that's why they need so much stimulation and get scratched by stimulation because they have never been privileged to open their heart, even on a serious friendship. Well, the cults know that. And the cults, therefore, promise that. And in a certain way, they give that. There is a kind of pseudo community when, when we're, we're all absorbed with the great leader and the great cause and finally we're living and, and how, how bourgeois of my mother and how, how, how crude and materialistic of my parents they're always boasting about their latest swimming pool was here we're united in, in the truth about oriental uh, panpsychism or something like that that's the big point. I have only one more big point than a little point. The second big point is that that's the big point about how they recruit, the two different ways of attracting people. My second big point is it makes all the difference in the world whether you are living in the truth, in a religious order, or you are uh, adoring idols in a cult. There are some people who 
they don't understand that. And this is another reason why the liturgy is in such disarray. I remember in America, in the underground stations, they used to have these signs that they have a lot of advertisement. Nine out of ten advertisements now are about social programs of the government. Planned Parenthood, where to get your abortion, where to get your unemployment, and everything else. Once in a while, they'll sell popcorn or something like that. But, but they are bound to give 10% of their advertisement space free to so-called religious or ethical societies. So I remember there used to be a sign saying, Worship the God of your choice this Sunday. That, that would be, I mean, they didn't give a damn what you did. The God of your choice this Sunday, and then if and then they show up a man, a woman, and one kid, and maybe if there was oh, I mean if they could spare two kids, if they want to have overpopulation, and everybody's happy, and they acted as if the real reason anybody goes to mass or church or synagogue or ministry or whatever is because you get the benefits from it. But the whole meaning of worship is how good it is for us, and therefore. It, it seems to them, why make a big deal about what you worship? It's that Catholics used to come into a church and genuflect and say something in Latin, and there'd be a priest saying things in Latin. The Protestants would come into an assembly hall, I mean, at least the Puritan Protestants, and hear a big, long lecture with the Bible. And, and, and then the Jews would, would read from the, the, the scriptures, and, and other people, the Muslims, would have their own way. What difference does it make? That these people say, the main thing is that we get something out of it. We're kneeling, we're doing, we're speaking, we're, we're conversing, we're hearing. And whether we, our prayers are addressed to God, or Allah, or Yahweh, or An, or, or Krishna, makes no difference. And this is one of the great errors of so-called social science, so-called psychology, I'd love someone to show me in what sense psychology is a science, by the way. I say the real scientists, the chemists and the physicists, should have a lawsuit and prevent their, their noble enterprise from being stolen by these charlatans in the science of, social, of psychology. Now, there are certain scientific procedures in trivial matters, but when it comes to understanding the human person, I claim it's nonsense. And these people, they always act as if they can understand the human person by looking inside him, looking at his organs, looking at his glands, and looking at mechanism. And it doesn't, it doesn't bother them what is outside of them, whether it's God or Jesus or Krishna or the sun god or Ra. What, what difference does it make? He, he's fulfilled. His, his adrenaline is flowing. He's at peace. He sleeps better. His knees are more relaxed. This kind of stuff. And this is the, this is the psychology of religion kind of stuff. He's more integrated. So, and the family's more harmonized and all that. 